It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week we bring you talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Maria came to America when she was five years old. Wrote that she had to cross a river before she ever knew what it meant to swim. Ran through knee-high grass as if the field were made of landmines. Hid under the belly of trucks amid concrete and fertilizer so as not to leave a scent for the dogs. She did not know why she was running. That's Clint Smith. He's a high school educator, a Harvard PhD candidate, and a slam poet. In a series of spoken word performances, Smith confronts inequality in American society. His poetry touches on black parenting, social justice, and violence against kids of color. We'll also hear youth speak up. Three high school students from the South D.C. area are interviewed about how they experience systemic inequality in their neighborhoods. Listening to their generation, they say, is the key to affecting change that will last a lifetime. Both presentations took place at the Aspen Institute Summit on Inequality and Opportunity. The summit is a gathering dedicated to nonpartisan dialogue about the widening opportunity gap in the U.S. It's a call to action in the run-up to the 2016 election. Here's Clint Smith. So this first piece I've been thinking a lot about over the course of the last 18 months, uh, the sort of pedagogy of black parenting. And what does it mean for, for black parents to have to raise their children in a, in a country and in a world that is often taught to fear them? Um, and so this poem speaks to, to that. One night when I was 12 years old, on an overnight field trip to another city, my friends and I bought super soakers and turned the hotel parking lot into our own water-filled battle zone. We hid behind cars, running through the darkness that lay between the streetlights. Boundless laughter ubiquitous across the pavement. But within 10 minutes, my father came outside, grabbed me by my forearm, and led me into our room with an unfamiliar grip. Before I could say anything, tell him how foolish he made me look in front of my friends, he derided me for being so naive. Looked me in the eye, fear consuming his face. It said, son, I'm sorry, but you can't act the same as your white friends. You can't pretend to shoot guns. You can't run around in the dark. You can't hide behind anything other than your own teeth. I know now how scared he must have been, how easily I could have fallen into the empty of the night, that some man would mistake this water for a good reason to wash all of this away. These are the sorts of messages I've been inundated with my entire life. Always keep your hands where they can see them. Don't move too quickly. Take off your hood when the sun goes down. My parents raised me and my siblings in an armor of advice, an ocean of alarm bells so someone wouldn't steal the breath from our lungs so that they wouldn't make a memory of this skin so that we could be kids, not casket or concrete. And it's not because they thought it would make us better than anyone else. It's simply because they wanted to keep us alive. All of my black friends were raised with the same message, the talk given to us when we became old enough to be mistaken for a nail ready to be hammered to the ground, when people made our melanin synonymous with something to be feared. But what does it do to a child to grow up knowing that you cannot simply be a child, that the whims of adolescence are too dangerous for your breath, that you cannot simply be curious, that you are not afforded the luxury of making a mistake, that someone's implicit bias might be the reason you don't wake up in the morning. But this cannot be what defines us. 
because we had parents who raised us to understand that our bodies weren't meant for the backside of a bullet, but for flying kites and jumping rope and laughing until our stomachs burst. We had teachers who taught us how to raise our hands in class and not just to signal surrender, and that the only thing we should give up is the idea that we aren't worthy of this world. So when we say that black lives matter, it's not because others don't. It's simply because we must affirm that we are worthy of existing without fear when there are so many things that tell us we are not. I want to live in a world where my son will not be presumed guilty the moment he is born, where a toy in his hand isn't mistaken for anything other than a toy. And I refuse to accept that we can't build this world into something new, some place where a child's name doesn't have to be written on a t-shirt or a tombstone, where the value of someone's life isn't determined by anything other than the fact that they had lungs, a place where every single one of us can breathe. And so when we think about violence, uh, and violence specifically against young people of color, uh, I think it's really important that we create a sort of holistic definition of what we mean by violence, and that violence isn't just a sort of interpersonal phenomenon, but that violence is systemic, and violence is structural. Uh, and so this next piece speaks to, to a sort of structural reality in the community where I taught, um, and, and reflects the sort of interplay between how, how structures and systems um, stripped away from communities over decades and decades and decades um, affect what young people are able to do inside the classroom. As a child, my father would tell me stories of ancient Egyptian warriors traveling for endless days and nights across infinite desert plains, showing signs of endurance and bravery I could only dream of emulating. He would tell me that upon their return home, these warriors would be welcomed with a feast worthy of their bravery on the battlefield. Years later, as a teacher in greater Washington, D.C., I too now find myself traversing a desert, though it is not the one I envision. A food desert is categorized as a poor urban area where residents cannot afford or are not given access to healthy foods and grocery stores. Every day at 2.45, I watch my students hop onto this leaking submarine of a school bus, every block bringing them deeper into an ocean where the only fish they find are fried, where fruits and vegetables are playing an everlasting game of hide-and-go-seek because there are no grocery stores here. Just liquor stores and Popeyes, Dunkin' Donuts and 7-Elevens, children born into a neighborhood that feels more pollution than solution, it is then I realize that I am not too far from the deserts I once dreamed of. See, whether Anacostia or the Sahara, it doesn't make much difference because these grocery stores, Southeast DC is no different than the Serengeti to them. Brown-skinned little boys like my students are nothing more than walking cacti, just a piece of scenery this world has taught everyone to stay away from. Brianna literally has a landfill in her backyard, so she has a hard time convincing herself the world doesn't just think she's trash. Restaurants come and dump the remains of food she'll never be able to afford to eat. Three steps from her back door, Jose eats fast food five days a week because his mother works three jobs to take care of six kids and only sees her son when she arrives home from work. At the same time, he is leaving for school. He has gotten so big that the excess fat bunker beneath his skin puts added pressure on his joints. His knees are literally crumbling under the weight of this world, Olivia watched her father shot two feet from her front porch. She wants nothing more than to go outside and play at the park after school, but gun violence has made a merry-go-round feel more like Russian roulette, so she doesn't go outside. Simply eats any processed food from the cabinet that will last long enough to prevent her from leaving the house too often. These are my students, my warriors, 
fighting a battle against an enemy they cannot clearly see. These kings and queens meant to feast, not to fester, but their zip code has already told them that their life expectancies are 30 years shorter than the county seven miles away. I can see the faults of my own ancestry shaking in their eyes. Diabetes and high blood pressure run through the roots of my family tree. Heart disease is as much a part of my history as shackles and segregation. So from my father's kidney transplant to Olivia's asthma, these things are more than mere coincidence. Both grew up in places more accustomed to gunshots than gardens. So tell me place doesn't matter. That the neighborhoods that are predominantly wealthy aren't the same ones that are predominantly healthy because when you're not choosing between buying your medicine and your groceries, health doesn't have to be a luxury. It doesn't have to be an abstract concept presented in academic journals and policy briefs. My students, overcome more every day than I will in my lifetime. They are the roses that grew from the concrete, the budding oasis in the heart of the desert, and their lives are worth far much more than the things that this world has fed them. And so, so again, thinking about uh, a broader and fairer and more holistic definition of violence, I think what's really important is to, um, to put that in conversation with all of the different sociopolitical phenomena that affect young people when they, when they step inside the classroom. And for me, one of those phenomena that I was confronted with was uh, the immigration crisis. And I taught a, a number of students in Prince George's County, Maryland, who, who were undocumented um, and who had family who were undocumented. And it was the first time that I interfaced directly with people who, who existed under the perpetual and ubiquitous threat of deportation um, for, and communities of folks who have been here for basically their entire lives. Um, and I think it's really important. Certainly, we can, we can both recognize immigration as a complex geopolitical issue while also ensuring that we're keeping people's humanity at the center of the conversation and that we're not losing, uh, losing touch with the fact that like, we're talking about people and not caricatures of people as some, as some people would have us believe. Every year, my students read Night by Elie Wiesel. Following completion of the novel, I assigned them the task of writing their own memoir. Maria came to America when she was five years old, wrote that she had to cross a river before she ever knew what it meant to swim, ran through knee-high grass as if the field were made of landmines, hid under the belly of trucks amid concrete and fertilizer so as not to leave a scent for the dogs. She did not know why she was running, but she knew that her mother cried every night for her father. She knew she was beginning to forget the outline of her daddy's face. She knew that he worked 18 hours a day just to provide them with food that they could barely find at home. She knew that he loved them and wanted to remember what it felt like to hold his daughter in his arms. But Maria was five. She doesn't remember life in Mexico she remembers kindergarten and sleepovers and middle school graduation. She is more American than any slice of apple pie, but that is not what we tell her. We punish Maria for just following directions, for being a child who is simply listening to her parents. We tell her parents that they are wrong for wanting a better life for their children. We tell them that a 4.0 isn't good enough. We tell Maria that college wasn't meant for girls like her. We say too much brown skin. We say too much accent. We say, where'd you come from? We say, you don't have a number, so you don't exist. It's hard to convince someone to do well in school when the law tells them that it won't matter, when you're a number before you're a face. How convenient that we forget our own history, a country of immigrants 
who were once told we didn't belong, an assemblage of faces simply waiting for our country to see us. So I'm going to do one last poem and then bring Damien up. Um, and, and so part of what I think is, is really important about this summit in general is this idea of ensuring that we, we don't exist in the sort of silo of our own communities, in the silo of our own, our own bodies more specifically, and that we recognize uh, that we must be a stakeholder in the injustice uh, suffered by other people, even if it's not an injustice suffered by ourselves. And if there's inequality anywhere, that there is inequality in a world in which we are a part, um, so that there's inequality in our lives and we can't stand for that. And so this poem is written uh, as a means to, to ensure that I was holding myself to the same standard that I was asking my students to. There was a large anti-bullying initiative going on in my school, um, and I was telling my students to make sure they stood up uh, against like verbal abuse and physical abuse and everything that was happening in their school. And then I had to really step back and interrogate myself and say, what are all the ways in which I'm, I'm not living up to this same thing I'm asking my students to do? What are all the different ways in which I'm silent in the face of other people's suffering? What are all the ways in which I allow injustice to be perpetuated right in front of me? Um, and so this poem is, uh, is an effort to hold me accountable to be the sort of teacher um, for my students that I was asking them to be. As a kid in a Catholic family in New Orleans, during Lent, I was always taught that the most meaningful thing one could do was to give something up, sacrifice something you typically indulge in to prove to God you understand his sanctity. I've given up soda, McDonald's, French fries, French kisses, and everything in between. <laughs> but one year, I gave up speaking. Figured the most valuable thing I could sacrifice was my own voice, but it was like I hadn't realized that I had given that up a long time ago. I spent so much of my life telling people the things they wanted to hear instead of the things they needed to, told myself I wasn't meant to be anyone's conscience because I still had to figure out being my own, so sometimes I just wouldn't say anything. Appeasing ignorance with my silence, unaware that validation doesn't need words to endorse its existence. When Christians was beat up for being gay, I put my hands in my pocket and walked with my head down as if I didn't even notice. Couldn't use my locker for weeks because the bolt on the lock reminded me of the one I put on my lips when the homeless man on the corner looked at me with eyes up, merely searching for an affirmation that he was worth seeing. I was more concerned with touching the screen of my apple than actually feeding him one when the woman at the fundraising gala said, I'm so proud of you. It must be so hard hard teaching those poor, unintelligent kids. I bit my lip because apparently we needed her money more than my students needed their dignity. We spend so much time listening to the things people are saying that we rarely pay attention to the things they don't. Silence is the residue of fear. It is feeling your flaws Gut-wrenched guillotine your tongue. It is the air retreating from your chest because it doesn't feel safe in your lungs. Silence is Rwandan genocide. Silence is Katrina. It is what you hear when there aren't enough body bags left. It is the sound after the noose is already tied. It is charring. It is chains. It is privilege. It is pain. There is no time to pick your battles when your battles have already picked you. I will not let silence wrap itself around my indecision. I will tell Christian that he is a lion, a sanctuary of bravery and brilliance. I will ask that homeless man what his name is, and how his day was, because sometimes all people want to be is human. I will tell that woman that my students can talk about transcendentalism like their last name was Thoreau. And just because you watch one episode of The Wire doesn't mean you know anything about my kids. So this year, instead of giving something up, I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. 
a stage on the underside of my inhibition. Because who has to have a soapbox when all you've ever needed is your voice? Clint Smith is joined on stage by Damian Wetzel, director of the Aspen Institute Arts Program. They talk about how art and poetry can help us keep humanity at the center of policy decisions. Incredible, incredible words. The choices of words matter. Uh, the way we interrogate our own participation and enable all voices is all wrapped up. Mm. In your, in your work and in what you've done. But the first thing I want to ask you is what do you think about all of this? You've been here all morning and how it relates to the work you've done and are continuing to do now on the, on the broader scale. Yeah, it's, it's a remarkable um, collection of people here. And, and I think I've been really challenged and fascinated and, and have learned a lot from, from a lot of the speakers. Um, and it's interesting, uh, so much of the, the talk has certainly and warranted you know, around policy, around politics. Um, and in my line of work uh, in, in the arts, part of what I'm always thinking about is how, how can we keep people's humanity at the center of these discussions? Um, and how can we, so for example, I study uh, incarceration in, at Harvard. Um, and a lot of the, the work around incarceration is, is uh, statistical in nature, quantitative, uh, a lot of historiography, which are immensely important right, in sort of showing us what what's at play um, in the system and, and historically and, and contemporarily. But uh, sometimes I think the humanity of people who are in the system get lost um, and that we don't actually have to force ourselves to interface with the fact that like, there, there are people behind these numbers. Uh, and I think the same exists in, in all facets of, of policy conversation, that, that sometimes the people get lost behind the policy and we can forget um, what we're fighting for, and it becomes more of an abstraction than, than a sort of reckoning with the fact that, that these are, are people for whom these policies have really profound um, implications. Yeah, those, decision, those decisions, those choices that are made on the policy and politics level could be distilled back to individuals in a much more effective way, which to me makes me think about your chosen art form, mm -hmm. poetry and voice in particular being such a powerful medium to express that humanity, but also, you know, in the sense that a protest can also be lost in a, in a, in a, in a, a sense of cynicism. It's not changing, and this is a protest. And to break through that, it seems to me that, you know, you've done it on every level, you know, from your own personal space to a classroom, full of young people who have varying levels of participation. In my work, I've seen that moment when the eyes actually will rise up and actually see a pathway, and poetry being just a, just a remarkably effective way of getting that interaction. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I think it's really, for me, you, you mentioned the sort of politics of the poem, and, and for me, over the course of the last year or so, I've been thinking a lot about what does it mean to create political art? Um, and how can you create political art that has a specific sort of social utility, but, but isn't didactic, that isn't preachy, um, but rather illuminates the sort of reality of, of social phenomena that are taking place. Um, but similarly, I also think that, that 
in some sense, for a lot of the students and, and folks that I work with, um, that you, you don't, that a poem doesn't have to be speaking to a specific social phenomenon necessarily to be political, right? And so a few months ago, I was reading uh, Notes on the State of Virginia, which is Thomas Jefferson's memoir and sort of manifesto. Um, and in it, he says very clearly and specifically that black people are inherently inferior to white people in endowments of body and mind, uh, and that the slave is incapable of love, and the slave is incapable of possessing and sustaining complex emotion. Um, and that he wrote in a letter to someone about Phyllis Wheatley, who was largely considered to be the first uh, documented, published African-American poet, um, that she's not a poet, right? Like, because black people cannot create beautiful things. Like, black people can, don't possess the sort of artistic and intellectual acumen to, to put things like poetry out into the world. And so I think of, like, what does that mean for, for this man who is largely considered to be the intellectual founding father of this country, for, who is responsible for the conception of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, to, to have not thought that I was fully human, right? To have not thought that I was capable of, of loving my mother or my partner or my students, um, and, and so when you sort of create that framework for, for a lot of the young students of color that I work with, like the very act of, of writing a poem is in, of it, is in and of itself a sort of political act, right? And is in and of itself an act of resistance against a world that, that has constantly tried to render you caricature, if not render you completely invisible. Um, and so whether you're writing about Ferguson or a flower, uh, I think that like that is equally, equally meaningful because you are rejecting a narrative that says you are not a full human being. And you're saying that I, I exist and, and am having a full human experience. And even though uh, either explicitly or implicitly, um, this country thinks otherwise. A lot of what you're saying is putting the historical context on the challenges of today, but using an artistic medium to, to gain voice, essentially. And I'm thinking about that in the terms of, of power, mm. of how to get to a place where those voices actually are heard in effective ways. That the choices that are made, you know, understanding the past and, you know, cliche, true, understand the past to, to do better in the future. Mm -hmm. But it is in those moments of decision making that, that voice really can or cannot be heard. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we heard earlier was that, you know, the end game is the job. The end game is job readiness. That's it. Education, yes, but it's about where we get to in the end. Uh, I'm not sure I feel about that. What do you mm. think? Uh, yeah, so it, it makes me think of, uh, so one of my favorite authors, Juno Diaz, uh, I went and heard him speak one time, and he talked about this idea of the violence of vocation and how from like as soon as young people come out of the womb, uh, we say, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And when we say that, we're not actually asking them what they want to be or who they want to be. We're asking them what they want to do. And so from a very young age, you're sort of a young person is unable to disentangle their vocation from who they are. Right? And I think that, that you know, we are all in, in part guilty of that, right? where we're unable to, to some extent, to figure out who we are beyond the work we do. Um, and again, this, uh, this sort of rendering of, of a, a less than full human experience. Um, and I've always thought, you know, certainly uh, jobs are important, but I, for me, education is, is an emancipatory endeavor, mm -hmm. right? Where, where students, uh, when I first came into the classroom, uh, I think I came in and was, uh, 
you know, my students are experiencing so much outside of the classroom. Uh, we're going to make this a safe space, a sort of bastion of excellence, and, and you know, forget everything going on outside of the classroom, like, because here we're just going to focus and everything's going to be great. And I think I quickly realized how, how pedagogically and intellectually disingenuous that was, and unfair to my students to ask them to forget what they were experiencing beyond the walls of my classroom, and that the classroom shouldn't be a place to escape from that. It should be a place to, to tackle that head on, right, and to recognize that the world is a, is a social construction. Right, and thus can be reconstructed and deconstructed, and you uh, have agency, and you can build the world into something new. You can build the world into what you think it should be, um, and that you don't have to accept the world as is, and you don't have to accept the status quo, and, and, and that you're doing it in collaboration with, um, with, your, with your teacher and with the other students in the classroom, and, and ultimately that makes you, a, again, a, a fuller person who's able to sort of look around the world and, uh, and critically interrogate everything they see. Let's, uh, we have to stop soon, sadly, but I want to talk about that word interrogate for a second. So uh, Darren Walker earlier talked about interrogating privilege, mm. and that's so wrapped up again in the historical contexts, and in, in a larger sense we could say the choices of words and the choices of what you write about and how you communicate are interrogating your own voice, mm. like what do I have? So given that and the work that you've done on the micro level, let's say, in the classroom, and now your work on the larger scale, trying to take that to scale, so to speak. Are you hopeful about the role of voice in influencing inequality in our society? Yeah, I think I am. I, I, I think that words are, are a means of engagement, right? And that what we have to, they provide part of what art and, and dialogue, hopefully art serves as a catalyst for dialogue that ultimately pushes us to recognize um, that there exists a world beyond our own bodies, right? And that we might all live in the, same, in the same place and exist in the same world, but navigate and experience it very differently. And somebody before was talking about this idea of truth. Um, and I think it's important for us to think of truth kind of with, with a little t rather than a big t, right? And that like there is not a sort of singular truth, but instead uh, that ev because everybody navigates the world um, that in a world that is, in a, in a way that is constructed by their own experience and the facets of their own identity, um, that everyone's truth might look differently. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's any less, uh, any less true. But we need to hear it. We need to hear it. All right. Thank you so much, Clint. That was Clint Smith and Damian Wetzel. Next, the Aspen Institute's Raj Vinakota invites three high school students to talk about how inequality impacts their lives. Vinakota is Executive Vice President for Youth and Engagement. He is joined by Victor Settles, Dakota DaCosta, and Asia Bulwer. I'm Raj Vinakota. I'm the new Executive Vice President at the Aspen Institute. We have started a new division focused on uh, titled Youth and Engagement, focused around the issues of youth, social justice, leadership, and engagement. I've been at my job for six weeks, so everything you hear today will be changed by next week. Uh, but one of the first things that we decided that we wanted to do in our work at the Aspen Institute was to ensure that we got the youth voice and perspective into all the work that happens. And so I'm very excited uh, this afternoon to have three uh, students from schools here in Washington, D.C. We did uh, a broad sweep asking for students to apply, had a wonderful uh, 
set of interviews, and these three students uh, were selected to join us, uh, have been listening to all the panels, and uh, we'll have a chance to engage with them now. So thank you. So let me start with a question, and kind of what I sense is probably one of the main themes of the conversation today, which is, uh, what does the American dream mean to each of you? And why don't you just also introduce yourself first? Well, my name is Victor Settles. I'm a senior at Idea Public Charter School. And for me, the American dream, I would like to start at the beginning of where America had its historical beginnings. Uh, in America, it was, often, it was often stated that America, when it was named America, came from the fact that people wanted to move away from the English and European monarchy as a whole. So the American dream for me is poetically moving away from one singular thing that defines you, but broadening yourself up to more opportunities where you can define yourself and be whoever you'd like to be. Um, hi, I'm um, Dakota. I'm, I'm from the C School of Washington, D.C. Um, the American dream is to me, generally just giving people, just giving people like black males a chance or giving the minority a chance. We ask, we, I talk to my friends all the time, I talk to my teachers, and all we ask for is a chance. People single us out from everyone else and they, ask, and they tell us, they look at us and say, we don't want you guys. They look at my neighborhood, they look, I'm from Southeast Washington, D.C., and Clinton brought it many times. They look at us and they say, we don't want those kids because they're, they're ignorant, they don't know anything. But you look at us and you say, you guys don't need anything, you don't want anything, but you never came to me, asked me personally, what do you want? You say I do, you, 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 make, my, you make my choices for me. And all I say is, I, we want a chance. So I want education, I want to strive, I want to, I want to get to a better place, I want to help my mother out, and I want to do it the right way. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go, I don't want to, I don't want to go take the easy ride down and sell drugs, because that's what people expect us to do. When I get on stage, I, people automatically has a bias against me. They, they automatically say, oh yeah, he's not good. He, they, we don't want him right there. I don't want people to think me like that. I'm tired. I'm 17 years old and it's, I shouldn't be 17 years old tired of people judging me. No one likes to be judged. Hello, my name's Asia Bower and I come from Third Girl Marshall Academy. And I think the American dream is a search for a better life. We got a lot of immigrants coming from different countries thinking this is the place for me to be better and be stronger. And it's ironically, it's something that's obtainable, but it's hard to obtain. And that's where I believe that we need more resources to help these people. We shouldn't just write off immigrants and think, oh, you can't come here because you're gonna change the way that, the way that our system is made up even though we are a nation built on immigrants. So I don't, I agree with Clint when he said that they say just because you don't have a number, you're not a person. And I don't, think that's, that's, I don't think that's morally correct to write someone off because they don't live up to your standards yet. So two minutes in, my job is done. We're going to break and we're going to move on. Um, so let me follow up with that. Um, tell me, uh, if you could, um, when you heard and you got the invitation to apply for this and a summit on inequality, Tell me kind of how you relate to that term, experience, and so on. Let's start with you, Victor. Um, me personally, I was approached with the opportunity because my guidance counselor, she said, this sounds perfect for you. And that's because she knew that I'm a Native American student. And Native Americans throughout history have been one of the races 
that have been oppressed and often forgotten as a race. And also, it's been to the point where most Americans have said that we are an extinct race. So um, with that, I wanted to come to this summit to talk about the inequalities and oppressions of Native American students. Because um, with the Native American community, um, one of the problems that we face is um, poverty. So I believe it's Pine Ridge Reservation, which is near White Clay, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. They have the highest amount of poverty in America as one of the counties. And because of that, that's been one of the um, his historical um, conflicts with poverty that has touched my heart personally because those are my people. And because my people have been affected by poverty but no one's really doing anything to solve it, mm -hmm. I want to come to this conference to have or give the Native American people a voice in front of all these people and let them know that we're still here, we exist, and we are very proud of who we are. Cody? Um, so, um, I heard about this opportunity from, um, actually, my, the administrative office in my school. Um, I was a part of the Aspen Challenge last year, so people, um, they pretty much knew my name and um, what my reaction was to a lot of situations. So they asked me would I um, join this summit to give my voice my opinion on uh, certain topics. And what I think equality is to, to anybody is singling out a group of people, which is specifically, I'm talking about the minority people, you uh, singling people out and not giving them what they want or what they need or what, what you say we need, but you don't give us. And I'm not saying anybody, when I say you, I mean like the government, the political system, the policymakers, the legislative, the legislative branch, the people that make the policies to set us up for success. They say, they say we, we don't need it and we don't want it and we're gonna make policies and they, 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 they put us in jail and they say, since you're in jail, we're not gonna give you, we're not gonna give you a chance. But how I look at it is, how does how does people come in my neighborhood and how do people define my life when you haven't even experienced what we experience? How do you know how do you know what's keeping us back? How do you know we're not graduating for a reason? How do you what's the reason? You people people put it they label us as numbers and they look at numbers and they dictate our life off just numbers and they say yeah they can't do it because they haven't graduated from a college in over 20 years and they haven't did graduated from high school. I ask you, ask me, what's the reason why we're doing it? You haven't came into our neighborhood and asked us. You look at us and you look down on us and you say they're not worthy. They're not worthy of doing anything. And I, and I just look at it and say, why judges? I know it's, a, I know it's a lot of judgment in this, in this country. And I just ask, why judges on something you and, and you don't know us? You know, you know we're black males. You know, you know we're from Southeast Washington D.C. We know that. We know that. But do you know the person that you're judging? at that moment. You don't know, so why judge us? Asia? It was on a Friday that my AP government teacher, Ms. Lee, came to me after my Black Lives Awareness Club meeting and said, I have an opportunity for you. I read the paper on the Aspen Institute, and I was like, OK. And <laughs> when I was OK, raise your hands if you had the same response the first time you read about the Aspen Institute. <laughs> While I was writing my, my essay to even get noticed by, you know, the people at the Aspen Institute, I was thinking, what's going to make me stand out? And one line that I wrote is that people on the east side of the river are left out. There's a disconnect between me 
in the, the rest of the D.C. She, my AP government teacher, Ms. Lee, told me in the beginning of school that if you was a tourist coming into Washington, D.C., they give you a map of D.C. for, you know, the famous tour sites, but they leave out Southeast. And I'm, I'm like, how do you leave out Southeast? How do you leave out... It's so many great minds in Southeast that you already telling us, based off of that map, that you already telling us that we don't matter. And that's where I don't think... It's not enough voices coming from my side of town to sit here and talk in front of you and let you know that we can do anything that y'all are doing just as well and probably better. <laughs> and so... I think it's important because it, it hurts my heart and it messes with my mentality when teachers are telling me you got to fight harder than the next student at, like, walls or, you know, better high schools and say, you got to fight harder because they already knocking you down 10 steps. Mm. And I'm like, well, I, I have the same, I'm getting the same curriculum. I'm sitting with the, I'm in the same city, so why can't I, why do I have to fight harder? And it's not even just about the race thing. It's very important that just because my zip code isn't the same as yours, you already think, oh yeah, she's not going to be able to do it. We're not going to give her a chance. When I came into the, to the interview, I was scared. I was like, what do I say? How do I stand out? I, I didn't even know how many students has came and interviewed and probably, they probably, oh, she, let's just get her in so we can see what she got to do. But they already picked their three. So I was like, how do I stand out? And I was so shocked the next day when I came from the interview that my teacher was like, you got it. And I was like, me? Like, <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh my gosh. And even in the meeting, I asked what made me stand out from the other two students who applied for my school. And I just want to let people know, and I want to leave y'all with the idea that you can't keep this bridge in between us. You got to bridge the gap. Because if you don't bridge the gap, then y'all constantly going to leave it up to people who never, who never went through the same tribulations that we went through to make the decisions for us. You got you to gotta include us. You got to include, and especially you got to include the youth because I'm not trying to say nothing, but, you know, it's always, like, 60-year-olds or 50-year-olds telling us what do we need to do when... <laughs> but it's always older people telling what the youth need, and we're going to be the people who live the next generation. They got to leave a legacy for the following generation after us. So all I'm saying is, oh, and I want to wrap it up, <laughs> is that just bridge the gap, and it's going to be a beautiful thing when it happens, so... So two things. Anyone who's 50 and 60, you can leave now. So thank you very much for coming. Uh, they must really like us because they've added another 10 minutes to my time. I don't know if that's actually the case. Uh, let me ask you, and Asia, you, you start to talk to this, but uh, let me, let, let's get actually very specific. Um, in your community, right, I'm not asking you to solve all the world's problems. I'm asking you to, from your perspective in the communities where you live, you go to school, where you have family and friends, can you suggest things that you think help even the playing field, provide the opportunity that what this whole session is about? One thing that I know that works is that when people who have the same ideas as me that know that I can do it and I'm just as capable as the next student, they come and they, they build my self-esteem. They say, you can do it. You're not just a number, you're not just a race. So I think it's very important, especially, we, we need to start early. Basically what I'm trying to say is that we need people to come in and be the mentors to the youth. Mentor them and let them know that things can happen and you can make a change and you can be a part of the change. 
So if there's not a disconnect and there's not people telling me maybe you should work a little harder, then maybe it's, it could change can happen. Um, I would say um, what keeps me going and what keep what can keep a community going is um just making us aware, giving us opportunities, giving us choices so we can pick from. I mean, it's, it is up to us. People say it all the time, it's up to you whether you want to take the opportunity or not, but we want to put it on the table so you can have the opportunity to do it. It's up to us to take the opportunity, but in some cases, we don't get the opportunity. Where I'm from, if I'm from the same place my friend is from, and um, I, I can't, so I'm going to keep referring back to my school, C, because it's like the greatest thing that ever oh, happened. It's the greatest before. school ever. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I, but C kind of like changed my life because um, being though it's a boarding school and I'm around, I'm, I'm there like five days a week or six days, you could say. I'm there six days a week and they exposed me to so many things I wasn't exposed to when I didn't go to a boarding school or I didn't go to C. I, just, I had one friend, he, we, we came from the same neighborhood, we went to the same school, we had the same teachers. We were the exact, we were the exact same person. We came from the same thing and we went, to the, we went to C. I stayed, he left. He left, he got shot in the neighborhood. And it, it, just, it just woke me up like, he left. What would happen if he would have stayed? My, my neighborhood it has no mercy for anybody. If the, if the neighborhood doesn't like you, they don't like you. And it's up to us to get out the neighborhood and do something with our lives. And if no one gives us the opportunity to, it's a lot of kids walking around our neighborhood and they don't know, they don't know what's out there for them. They just know like, it's drugs here, we got money, we can get money, we can get clothes, we can just get quick money, let's do this. I don't know nothing else. I'm about to just, you can't, someone's not gonna know something that they don't, they haven't been taught or haven't been told. You can't, you can't just depend on them to actually go get the information because some people just need to know the information to actually go researching and do it. But in my neighborhood, we, they don't come within our neighborhood and, and tell us these opportunities. So when I got to see, they told me the opportunities and I took advantage of them. And it's a lot of people that just, they judge me, they judge me, and there's a lot of people I never I talk to, and they say, you, you young kids walk around here with your pants sagging, and you don't do nothing with your lives. But little did you know, I just came from Aspen, Colorado, and I just did a panel, <laughs> and I just talked to other people. And I, I'm just, I just, I just can't, I'm just, just I'm just so confused of why people just judge you as soon as they, they see your skin color and see where you're from. I mean, you can't judge me because I'm doing, I'm trying to do something with my life and I, I'm trying to get to college and I, I wake up every day and I think about my future and I just do it. I, and I don't want to be in my neighborhood anymore because my neighborhood is no place for me to be. And that's why I love to come to school every Sunday and I just put it, I just put in the most work I can do and I just try to strive to be the best person I can be because it's people out here can help you, but there's more people out here that don't want to help you. And it's, it's a lot of people that just tie strings around your wrist and hold you back. And they hold you back in front of a big TV screen and they let you watch the whole world come before your eyes. And they just hold you back the whole time. And I just don't know. I just, I'm just confused on why you just say I can't do it when you just tie me down and you just say I can't do it. So why just encourage me and I'll do it. And, and I don't. And sometimes I don't need encouragement because I can encourage myself and I can just I can push and I can be the best person I can be. So. Um, if I may ask for clarification, the question, <laughs> um, the question was, what would we do to help solve? If the... you could do one thing okay. to help, and I'm not talking about the world writ large, but your, your community, what would you do? Um, well, with my community specifically, I realized that a lot of the help that we're getting, we are getting help, but a lot of the help is coming from the outside. And what I would recommend is personally, a lot of, uh, most times, the best help you can get is from somebody that you know. And um, the best help that I've gotten is from people that I do know. And what I would recommend is that you have 
people that you pick and that you know. And most times they are trained to help you. Um, some guidance counselors, teachers, um, uh, just um, regular um, mentors, mm -hmm. tutors, things like that. They would be able to help people who are younger of age in impoverished areas. And because that they know you, you will be more willing to listen to them and more inclined to hear. And because of that, I believe that that would have a major impact on impoverished areas and the inequalities that exist there. So one of the things that was really exciting to me, in addition to having you up here, was to have you here all day to listen to other people talking from very different perspectives about these issues. Um, tell me uh, some thoughts or reflections about specific things that you heard today. You don't have to name names. I'll do it for you. No, uh, you, but uh, are the reflections either pro, con, or just quizzical, one from each of you? Yeah, Asia, um, go ahead, Cody. Um, so, um, Something small I heard Blair Taylor say. He said, um, the key to having um, a functional society or just um, a better way, it starts with the young people. And he says, and he, he talked about how he, gave, he gives college students jobs and so they can go to school too and they just pay it off. And as they go and they just work and they actually go to school. And as I said, it does start with young people because most young people don't have a voice, and young, most young people, they don't, they don't, some people don't care about what young people have to say because they, they, especially if they're like of the minority, they say they don't matter. Why are we listening to them? They, 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 they just, they really just don't understand what we go through. And I, I, I come back and forth on why judges if you don't know us, and that's just a big thing. It starts with us, and you you have to you have to target all young people. You have to hear, you have to hear what we say, and some policies that people make are for the young people. But how can you make the policies for young people if you don't care to listen to what we have to say or what we go through? Like I I, I just all I ask for is just just listen to our voice and just to listen to what we go through. Like have a meeting with us or something. I don't know, but I'm gonna give everyone Cody's email, Twitter <laughs> handle, and cell phone at the end of this. That's all. That's all me and my friends talk about. We just talk about have, just having a voice and just. That's why. That's I, that's why I have a voice. I want to have a voice in my school. I want to have a voice in my community. I want to come back and just talk to like I talk to my young kids and the young kids in the school, and I tell I just ask them what they want and what they want and what they want what they want to be and what they want to do and what they see themselves doing. And they tell me now, I'm, 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 you can push for it. you do it. You you have to think and you have to strive to be your own. You have to have determination. You just can't let negative comments and negative people just hold you back because that's what's killing everybody right now. It's just negative comments and negative one word, one sentence you say to somebody can kill their whole life and just beat them down because words do hurt sometimes. And people say words don't hurt, but words do hurt. And it, it just makes you think about your whole life when someone just looks at you and say, you're not worth it and you don't, you can't do it. But I, I came to learn that I can do it. And I can't be better than whoever said I can't. Whoever whoever's judging me, I can be better than you. I can be. I have a great mind, and I I know I do. And you don't have to tell me that. <laughs> I can. I can. I I know I have a great mind, and I I know I can do it. Victor, any uh, reflections on one or idea from this morning? Well, this morning, Arthur Brooks said something. He quoted the statement from the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, which is, give me your huddled masses. And that made me think about going back again to me being a Native American student. Um, Native Americans in the past, we accepted the huddled masses of European settlers. 
And it's because of that kindness that we extended to them that many people are able to excel in their futures, in their endeavors today. And if we were to extend our hand and um, also embody the kindness that many people have given to us in the past to other people who are in need, that would actually put America on a stepping stone that will propel them into a greater future. Um, and yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> So my whole goal when I set up here was to let you know that there is a gap and that we need to fill it. So also, like Arthur Brooks, he said that poor people are seen as liabilities to manage. And when he said that, I was like, yes, someone understands. Because <laughs> I feel like there, the disconnect that we have between our middle classes are large. People always talk about the 1%. Y'all thinking about the 1%, I'm thinking about trying to get to the middle class. And people don't understand that we need to work as a unit because divided, we don't stand strong. So, well, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. So, you're saying enough, so good, but there's anything. Well, what I want to, when he said that, I don't want people to think that. Even though it's sad that people, he was able to say those words in the same sentence, it's true. It's true that we are seeing more as just we, we are seeing more as just like the child that you don't want to take care of, but you know you got to take care of it. Because I feel like we are the part of America that people want to leave out. People don't want to present us or try to help better us or make us on the same level. They like to keep it separate so things could be equal, but it's not, it's not separate. And it's, I mean, it's not equal if we are all divided and you're saying, oh, well, we got to give them this, and we give them food stamps, so they should be okay. And we got public housing, so they should be okay. You're not working to make us better. You're not working, to, working with us to be on the same level as, you know, anybody out there in the crowd. You were just trying to keep us in one succinct area and think, okay, they're fine. They're doing well. But then we're doing well, but we got people shooting and killing young kids for shoes or robbing stores and just stealing from people, and it's just like... Y'all talk about how we are such a, a bad influence on each other, but no one is trying to make it better. No one's trying to bridge that gap. Yeah, that's all. Okay, we'll just keep throwing. Okay. Um, I was incredibly moved by Clint and his comments, um, and so I'd like to finish with the following question. They're not expecting it, so this should be fun. Oh. <laughs> um, who do you intend to be? Oh, me first. <laughs> I'm a big person on leaving a legacy. So I have a younger brother who has autism, and he has faced a lot of tribulations because of his autism. So I want to, my goal is to open up a national program that allows kids with special, dis special mental disorders to feel that they are equal to me and you. I want to let them know that this doesn't hinder you from nothing. I, I tell my brother Lamonte every day, that's not your crutch. You're not about to use it as an excuse. So that's what I want to be. I want to be the face, because there's not a lot of faces yet for people of autism. I want to be the face to let them know that you're just as equal as me or the next person sitting next to you. You shouldn't be denied a job because you have this behind your name. You shouldn't be able, no one should be able to say you're not good enough because of your mental disorder or even physical disorders. So that's what I intend to be. I intend to leave a legacy for kids with special mental disorders and let them know that you're probably better than me 
in everything that you do. So, yeah. I don't know if this is the same thing, but I don't know what I want to be. I don't want. I don't know what I tend to be, but I know what I I want to do. I know. I know. I I I know that I want my actions to make people. I, I want my actions to make people look at me and say, "He's great," and whatever he came from, whatever wherever he's from, it built him up, and it couldn't tear him down. I don't. I don't. I, I don't know where I want to be. I don't know what I want to do. I know I have short-term short-term goals and long-term goals, and I I I I, I want to fulfill. I want to fulfill every goal I, I write on a piece of paper, and I say I want to do this. And whatever those goals create me into, I know I want to be the best man my mother ever seen. I want to be the best man my little brother has ever looked at. I want to be an example for everybody. That's I want to be. I want to set an example for everyone that's looking at me and say I couldn't do it. I want to. I want to create this picture of someone looking at me and saying. You did it. You're great. Keep going and make a change, cause that's all. That's all, my overall goal is to make. My overall goal is to make a change and make a change, in, especially in my little brother's eyes and the little kids that look at me and say, "Yeah, yeah, I want to be like him. Yeah, he's going good. Yeah." <laughs> I just want. I just want to. I just want to be great, because a lot of people has tried to tear me down for like my whole life, and I'm 17 years old, and I, they tried to tear me down my whole life saying I couldn't do it, and you're not going to do it, and make sure you stay out the street, and make sure you you, you you just calm down when you're around police officers, and they gave me all these precautions that I didn't have to deal with when I was little, but now I have to just look at, I just have to, I just have to be still and make sure I'm moving slow around these police officers because it's, things can happen, and now we set up to all these standards and we set up to all these things that we have to follow because in one little step, your life can be gone before your eyes. So I'm going to take it slow and I don't want to take it slow, but <laughs> the society tells you to take it slow and make sure you don't make the wrong, the wrong choice. But I know not to make the wrong choice. The society didn't have to tell me that. Um, throughout this entire discussion symposium, I would probably would have said I wanted to be a zoologist, mm -hmm. but that still is the same answer that I would give. And with this, being a zoologist, the reason why I wanted to do that is to help people. And if you had asked me that same question, or if you would ask me if I wanted to be on this panel today at the beginning of the school year, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. And at the same time, I've learned that throughout these last few months that I'm not just somebody who wants to be a scientist, but I'm somebody who wants to help other people. And that's who I want to be. I don't want to be somebody who stays in one path and keeps to themselves and only works for themselves. I would want to work for everybody. And whatever means I can do to work for everyone, for their common good, I would do. So hopefully someone's been taking very copious notes for how to go about improving uh, our communities and our country. I want to thank uh, these three uh, young people, uh, partly for the ideas they have, but also for the frankness with which they shared them. Uh, it takes a lot of guts <laughs> to come up here and to share them, and it's incredible. Uh, I have no doubt that this is not the last time that all of us will see Victor Settles, Dakota Dakota, or Asia Boulware. 
um, and I want to thank them. Thank you for this opportunity, and please, please, please do tell them each that they're going to be great and figure out ways you can help them. Thank you. That was Victor Settles, Dakota DaCosta, Asia Bulware, and Raj Vinakota recorded live on November 19, 2015 at the Aspen Institute Summit on Inequality and Opportunity. The summit convened more than 200 of our nation's most important policymakers, thought leaders, social entrepreneurs, and philanthropists from all over the country. To hear more from the Aspen Institute Summit on Inequality and Opportunity, check out an earlier episode of this podcast featuring Vice President Joe Biden. Discover more about the Institute on our website, aspeninstitute.org. You can follow us at Aspen Institute on Twitter and Facebook. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>